This episode of Watching America originally aired October 17th, 2019. People often ask me, which guest have I enjoyed the most? The answer is easy. It's the American actor Terry O'Quinn. Actor Terry O'Quinn on the techniques and disciplines of acting for the full hour. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Terry O'Quinn. Most know him as John Locke on Lost, but he is also known for his work on such diverse shows as Alias, L.A. Law, The West Wing, Matlock, Jag, Miami Vice, Patriot, The X-Files, Law and Order, Hawaii Five-O, Remington Steel, The Blacklist, Moonlighting, Diagnosis Murder, Millennium, NCIS, and now on ABC's new series, Emergence. And the Emmy goes to Terry O'Quinn. Who did you say you were? Joe Evans, police chief from Southfold. Um, is this yours by any chance? Do you know what I do to people who steal my property? I do not, but I would love to hear all about that. You found something dangerous and you think you understand it, but you don't. I need to know who is sleeping in my house. Emergence on ABC. It is no exaggeration to say that perhaps one of the most happy moments I've had thus far on watching America is to have our next guest, Mr. Terry O'Quinn. I must start, Terry, by uh, telling you when we first met, and I don't expect in any way you will remember, but it's of great significance to my wife and I. We were going through a rather disgruntled period, not with each other, but with, with our jobs. You know, and, yeah? yeah, you know what it's like. And so we thought, like, oh, I'm so tired of this. Okay. And we had been binging week after week after week on Lost mm. uh, and communicating with my son in London and just saying, oh, there's a great series and, and what have you. And so we're driving out to a local beach here in Virginia. And I said to myself, I said, Christine, I, I, I can't imagine anything better than being at ho- in Hawaii. And I said, you know, we see you Lost all the time. And, you know, I just, and then she said, yeah, all we need to do now is just run, in, and run into Terry O'Quinn. <laughs> it was just a side comment. So we go out to the beach, to the north end of a particular beach. I'm walking out, and I said, oh, this is like Hawaii, and it's beginning to rain a little bit, and there's a rainbow. And I said, well, yeah, all we need to do now is see Terry O'Quinn. I turn to my right, and I see a distinguished, bald gentleman, follically challenged by, like myself, <laughs> yeah. reclining in the sand in a little chair with what seemed, uh, I recall, uh, a young boy and perhaps an older man there at the same time. And I don't know if they were associated with you or not. That was never established. But I turned to my wife and I said, that is Terry O'Quinn. And she says, oh, come on. I'm not in the mood for this. And I said, I'm telling you the truth. Terry O'Quinn, good old John Locke, alias, is sitting over there. She said, you're not going to go up to him, are you? I said, yeah, I will. She says, well, what are you going to say? I said, well, I never say I like your work and I never start conversations like that. I just say something totally arbitrary that they have to respond to. So I came over to you and you're reclining and I saw this semi look of dread in your face like, uh, I really would like to be alone right now. But I said, you went to the University of Michigan, didn't you, Mr. O'Quinn? To which you responded <laughs> and clarified. And I knew that I could engage you in conversation. And we had a lovely chat for about 10 minutes and I explained to you that I taught film. I I, I vaguely remember that. Are I you was, serious? I, I, yeah. Well, I mean, then... Uh, um, lots of people approach me, but that's a fairly unique approach, as you said. Yeah. But um, some people have approached me about college, where I went to college, or where I uh, where I grew up, or you know, being a Michigander. Um, but I uh, and everything's a little foggy. So you could have just made that whole thing up, and no, I still no, it's, vaguely it's, it's remember it. Not the truth. And the other thing is, I you know, I had the presence of mind, uh, first of all, not to ask for a selfie, although you're very obliging to people. I've seen that on online, but I didn't ask for a selfie, nor an autograph, or anything like that. You were incredibly gracious. And 
And that's what I've heard about you from virtually every single, well, every person I've I've spoken to who has met you, had an encounter with you, and what I've heard from other actors about you is that you are so warm and generous. What's intriguing is your background, so let's let's start there. Um, your mother had 11 children. My mother did have 11 children, of which I was the seventh. Like your uh, daddy? Uh, you like my father. Right. Um, and... Uh, they, they, uh, we, uh, we all. The first two were by another man, so they were my half brother and sister. Right. They were born in the South. Uh, she was an Alabama girl, and my father met her during World War II when he was stationed down there because he was from Wisconsin. But uh, she had two children, and they met down there. And um, he, he brought her, married her, brought her up to uh, Michigan, and uh, then they carried on. She had nine more. Well, good. Irish Catholic family. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, well, you also grew up very tightly with your brothers. And the, the first question I want to ask you, and your daddy was a, uh, was a school principal. Incidentally. He was. So yes, he, he, he was. had a dual role in your life. He was your principal and your daddy. He Did was you find indeed. that complicated, complicated? Sometimes. It was occasionally. It was occasionally. Well, I didn't have the luxury of occasionally skipping school or, yeah. or misbehaving. In, right. In, in any way, although I did, I was a bit of a wise ass in school, but um, I got away with it for the most part. But um, it was I, I didn't. It was all I understood. I knew, so it. Uh, I suppose it might have been considered a little complicated. I think it was a little strict. Yes. You know, yeah. as a as a uh, as a result of that. Well, when you were a boy and you were sleeping with your brothers, uh, Dick and Marty, and um, <laughs> in the dark, and you'd play games and you know just taunt each other. Did it ever occur to you that part of that playfulness would one day exhibit itself as a professional career? No, it did not. When it, did it? it when did it occur to you? First of all, uh, Dick and Marty, you know, you know my whole family. Do you know? The no, I just do a lot of research. We just <laughs> Dick and Marty. <laughs> I we're, do we're my the research. two that were older, just or just above me. Marty was just just older than me, and Dick was just older than Marty. Yeah. But uh, no, that never occurred to me because it, it was we were in a very small town uh, in the country. I mean, there might have been twenty five hundred people in the town I grew up in, in mm. Newberry, Michigan, mm. in the Upper Peninsula, and uh, there was no. There was no theater. There was no live theater there. I don't think – I think occasionally the senior class in our high school did a play, uh, but I'm not sure that was even an annual event. Uh, there was no community theater, so um, I, didn't, I didn't have any uh, understanding of and, – and in fact, there was very – there wasn't a theater in our town, a uh, movie theater, after – a certain point when I was very young, there was I remember going and seeing a horror movie there. I didn't ever want to go back, but the theater didn't stay there long, so it didn't seem like something outside of watching Gunsmoke on television or Lassie that there was didn't seem any way there from here. What did you envision yourself doing with perhaps more limited prospects? I didn't know. I had no idea when I you know I was a, I was a fairly good athlete when I was in school. I was a basketball player, and I didn't, but I didn't. <laughs> And I, and I was good in my high school and uh, and good during high school. When I went to college, it was clear. And as I watched it on television, that was not going to be an outlet. I played music. I played the guitar and performed. That was my first experience of performing anything for people. I would go out to a ladies' night at the golf course and play songs for the ladies. And, <laughs> and whenever I had an opportunity, I played the guitar, which I picked up from my oldest brother, Johnny Eugene, the Alabama boy. Mm. who was playing Elvis and the Everly Brothers. Right. Um, but that was my first experience of performing, and I knew I enjoyed performing. Was your guitar playing acoustically based? Because you've just mentioned basically, you know, the Everly Brothers are an acoustic act and what have yes. you. I know you like Neil Young and, and people like that. Yeah. Did you go electric ever? Did you ever? No, I never did. Never did. It always seemed difficult. I'm very loud, and, it, you know, it amplified my mistakes. <laughs> I, can, I play guitar and I've played when people say when I tell people I've played the guitar for 50 years they expect that I'm very good um, I'm, but I'm merely very experienced um, it's, I, it's a rhythm instrument when I play well, well you are quite good and I notice you spying over my shoulder yeah, at a guitar lovely and I'd be alive if I didn't say I had some um, uh, ulterior motive for having that guitar oh, yeah. <laughs> perhaps later you might play us out um, when did you know that you wanted to be an actor when I went to college, uh, when I went to the University of uh, to Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, actually, you know what I think, and I always tell people what ignited the spark was Olivia Hussey. 
Really? <laughs> in Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Which I saw in the 60s. Yeah, she did it when she was like 14 or 16 point, or something. Yes, and I was, you know, I was immediately struck dumb. I was in love with uh, Olivia Hussey yes. for a long time. But yeah. I, and I think it was partly during watching, the, I equate it to that film in particular. Uh, I said, this is happening somewhere. They just, this was just made somewhere, somehow. Yes. There must be a way through this life's maze from Newberry, Michigan to wherever that's happening. But, you know, I didn't have a conscious uh, thought of trying to get to that place. But How to navigate I, that. I was looking in that direction and I yeah. was, you know, so uh, I got to, and I, I, uh, my parents bought a, the album, the soundtrack of that film. Mm. There was, and there was a Nino Rota's music on, you know, what right. is a youth? And yes. That's, yes. All that stuff. Very romantic, and I was a very romantic, and so I learned some of the dialogue from what was on the soundtrack. And Romeo says, "For my mind misgives some consequence yet hanging in the stars." Yes, let's let love chide us not. I think is yeah, a line yes, too. Yes, and all yes. of that. Now you would eventually go on to do Shakespeare, um, but before we get there, when was the moment that you said, "I'm an actor"? Now. I'm reminded at this moment of Marlon Brando, who said once that, you know, everyone's an actor because they have to act at their job and pretend they like things which they don't like and what have you. Um, were you successful in, in your privacy of presenting a self that needed to be presented? And were you ever self-aware that, hey, I'm pretty good at this. I can make people believe that I'm actually authentic when I'm saying this, when in fact I may not be. That's that's down the road some, I think, from the point at which I got to the... The first thing I realized was that when I auditioned for a play, the first play I auditioned for at Central Michigan University was Henry IV, part one. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, they cast me mm -hmm. as Edmund Mortimer. And um, I realized within a short time that I had found my folks. Yes. Uh, yes. And I said, okay, this is my tribe. And uh, it didn't exist. It had not existed for me anywhere before that. But um, I understood that this was the, this was where I needed to be. These are the people I needed to be with. Well, let me ask you about your early training. Uh, and you go to university and you do start to train. And, and did you do the traditional works? Did you look at Uta Hagden and uh, Respect for Acting and an actor prepares? Or did you bypass all that? I bypassed it. Not, uh, not intentionally or consciously. I just – it was never presented to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in any formal way, the classes that I took in terms in in at the university, um, acting classes, uh, theater classes, there there was very little theater history. If I ever was, I was a terrible student. Mm -hmm. uh, I discovered that I wanted to be and do theater and uh, be in plays, and that's pretty much all I thought about uh, performing opportunities. And uh, so I didn't, you know. It's, as far as I'm still, I'm still consider myself a pretty poor student of my craft in terms of being knowledgeable about who's doing what and what's happening in the business. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit. So you love the work. I love the work. You love the work. Yeah. yeah. I've always had a sense by watching you um, that, yeah, I mean, it's nice to have the accoutrements of success that come with, with, with fame and what have you. But that's not what you're about. I mean, I, I see that. Uh, and I think that's what is so attractive to people who follow you, is that this earnest sense of presence in your performance. That's lovely to say. I uh, um, I do love the work, and I don't I don't. What accoutrements of success I've acquired are are fairly minimal. Um, I don't you know it's not the first thing I look at is what am I going to get. What am I, how much money am I going to make for doing this job? The first thing I look at is what is the job. And quite honestly, uh, I rarely, in the first 20 or th I've done this a long time, 20 or 30 years, I didn't say no to people because I couldn't afford to. Yeah. I, you know, I, had a, I was married at 27 and we had two children and I, and, uh, I needed to make a living. And yes. this was what I chose to make a living at. And I was, uh, I was, I was, successful enough to only have to be an actor for for those for these many years for my whole career but i didn't have the luxury of and very few do uh, right. of uh, saying no to anyone who will offer you a job or to pay you for doing what you love to do some actors seem quite infatuated with being an actor more than actually doing the work <laughs> do you, would you agree <laughs> yes i would agree okay i've had the conversation in fact we said 
I said recently, we were, I was talking with somebody, and we were, I don't remember who we were talking about, but we were both kind of, we were bitching about something. I said, he's, he's so busy being an actor, he just doesn't have the time to act. He doesn't have the, fo- <laughs> doesn't have the focus, you know. But um, I try not to just talk that way about people too much, but sometimes that is that happens, yeah. Orson Welles said that there is such a thing as, as the uh, delight, and I'm paraphrasing, the delight and bliss of ignorance. Sometimes by not knowing, we can be spared an awful lot of uh, self-infringement. For instance, uh, were you ever caught up with whether or not you were a technician versus a uh, sense memory Stanislavski student? Now, for the audience, let me just explain. The technician school is basically where it's observational, external. That's a superficial way of looking at it. Whereas the uh, Konstantin Stanislavski method is more internal. You uh, import from experiences you've had to the scene that you're working in currently. Were you able to bypass that, or was it helpful? I don't think you can bypass it. Okay. Uh, I, I don't think you, you can unconscious, you can be unconscious of it, but I don't know how you avoid being those things. I always asked myself, I, I had the fortune, the good fortune of working before they were done with Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy on the same stage in, in Broadway, on Broadway. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, that, that was a long time ago, so I don't know if your audience knows them, but, but they were good. Some of us do. They were good examples yes. of the technician, which yeah. I thought Cronin was, yes. and, and the, the, the light from above, which I thought Jessica Tandy was. Mm. And, the, you know, the short answer is all you have to do is make the audience believe it. It doesn't really matter how. I have no interest in how you do it outside of, you know, a purely technical interest. I don't care how you – I don't care how you convince me. Just let me relax and believe what you're doing. And uh, any method that works is satisfactory. I think I incorporate both those things. I, I never consciously tried to draw on things in the Stanislavski method. I always just tried – Anthony Hopkins said acting is pretending. And, uh, you know, I remember working with another actor. I had this conversation with my brother this morning who teaches acting. Another actor said acting is lying. And I I said, uh, I can't agree with that. I can agree with Anthony Hopkins that it's pretending. Mm-hmm. And, and the better you are at it, the more convinced the audience will be. Um, but lying suggests that you're... Nefarious deception. You're fooling people that you're yeah. that you're that you're in a you're somehow playing against an audience. You're trying to cheat, when in fact it's all about the truth. It's all about telling the truth um, and tell the truth while you're pretending. So that might just be a semantic argument, but it's um, I agree with Anthony Hopkins. It's pretending, but it's and it, but it can get very deep. Yes, I concur. Um, let me just ask you regarding any particular technique that you learned by official training or observing other actors that were particularly helpful. I know of various people who went to drama school and didn't find it terribly helpful at all. I, re- I recall Sigourney Weaver saying she went to Yale Repertory Drama School and she said about the only purposeful, helpful thing she learned was movement. And she said everything else was self-discovery. Is there anything external that you've observed uh, by official means of learning about acting or in another actor which you've incorporated and say, hey, that was a great technique. And I ask this with the young actors or perhaps even mature actors listening right now in mind. Uh, in, in terms of formal teaching, well, uh, I think stagecraft is important. I mean, first yes. of all, I haven't had an opportunity to use it lately because I haven't been in theater in de- decades. Do you miss it? Very much. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, and uh, I hope to have the luxury of going back to it again soon. The problem is you start living a certain way and then you have to maintain somehow, you have to pay your mortgage. I'm going to have a nice house for once in my life. Then you buy one and then you have to pay the mortgage on that house. For, so you have to keep on making money. But theater doesn't pay that money. You know, I was doing Broadway in New York and I could hardly afford to live in New York. <laughs> but yeah. I digress here. I think I pick up things from people. I, I pick up things from performances and I go like, well, why did that affect me so strongly? And oftentimes it's because it was unexpected hmm. or, or it, was a, it, was a, it was a choice that, although obvious, was still surprising in yes. its execution. I know sometimes I'm stumped if I'm doing a scene and I, just, I say, I don't know how to approach this. And, and uh, if, it, if we're out of time and it comes right down to it, I'm going to say, I'm just going to pretend to be Robert Duvall. And nobody's going to know that I did that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's who I'm going to be. Uh, but um, 
Usually it's that. It's, yeah. it's, it has to do with pe- the people's courage when they make choices. You know? But isn't that part of the grit and the discipline? I mean, you, you know, you say that uh, as, as a wonderful anecdote, but it's also very revealing and extremely brave of you to say that, by the way. Um, and again, endearing. I mean, we, to, to have somebody be so open and honest about their plights when they don't know what to do. But your willingness to do that in that moment, that's the grit of the real actor, isn't it? You're like, okay, I've got to deliver something and I'm going to do it. Yes. I mean, it, 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 it is. You know, I mean, one of the things I've always loved about the craft and the businesses of theater and film and television is that it's cooperative. It's that it's a team. It's always a team effort. Hmm. And if you're working with a, uh, if you're working with another actor and if you're a professional, and I say the word – with all that it entails. When I call somebody a pro, it's pretty much the best thing I can say about them as an actor. It means that they show up, they're prepared, mm. they are um, respectful, yes. you know, they're, they're on time, they're yes. all, all of these things, they're, they're generous, they're helpful. Yes. So if I'm up against it and I have to deliver something and I don't know what to do, the first option is to have a discussion. Well, obviously there should, there's a director there. And the director has the uh, the liberty of talking to you whenever he or she wants to. And and if you need some help, and then you say, well, I, "I need some help." You've described this scene to me one way. Could you could you tell me another? Could you say it another way? Right. Could you say it? Okay, that say it another way. Yes. Um, just give me something to hook onto because I'm limited in my understanding, as are we all. I want to ask you about the the intimidation factor and the fear. Um, it's my contention that most of us live in, in concealed fear most of the time, varying degrees of it. Uh, and at least I confess to that. And, and we can't always identify the fears. But you go into a new arena and you work with a new stable of actors, if you will. Um, let's suppose in the years that you were doing a lot of guest starring, uh, let's talk about uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. You go into wardrobe. You've, uh, you were able to parley that, I would imagine, from, from working with uh, Michael Cimino uh, and doing Gates of Heaven mm-hmm. or Heaven's Gate. Mm-hmm. And um, now you've got a film role and you're in SAG, Screen Actors Guild, and uh, you've got probably perhaps a more prominent agent and you're in California. And you pinch yourself and you say, my gosh, I'm now doing the next generation of Star Trek. I'm going to be with Patrick Stewart. You go on to the lot, you see the honey wagons, uh, you see the generators, you go into the soundstage, you go into makeup, they're actually fitting you in the uniform. Mm-hmm. And then you have to go and, and do those lines. How intimidating and frightening is it? And how do you get through it? It's intimidating um, as you approach it. Uh, but all of the rest depends on them, on Patrick Stewart and Jonathan Frakes. And they were the kindest uh, group of actors, one of them I've ever worked with. They were welcoming and generous and, uh, and uh, they were just sweethearts and, and, uh, and funny. Energize. Aye, sir. I bet you never thought you'd see me again. It's good to see you, sir. Yeah, sure it is. You look like you're about to faint. No, it's, it's just, it's been a long time. Uh, Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Admiral Eric Pressman. Pressman, yes, of course. You were Will's first commanding officer on the uh, the Pegasus. That's right. As a matter of fact, the Pegasus is the reason I'm here. She's still out there, Will. And the Romulans have found her. I remember there's a scene where uh, there was a scene where we were in makeup and they got Worf. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, had, yeah. uh, he was right. in some sort of alien. <laughs> yeah. And he said, "Plastiques all over his face." Up and he goes, <laughs> yeah. "Bring the turtle." He said, and the turtle was the the, the head, piece. the appliance that went on his head. Yeah. And then he would, then he would laugh, and they'd put the turtle on his head, and he had to go through this every day. But uh, I remember a scene where he said, "There's a captain. There's a Romulan warship uncloaking in front of the starboard bow." And and they're all supposed to say so. I don't know what, uh, but they all engaged in, in rehearsal. They all started running about and hiding under things. And Patrick Stewart sat in his chair and pulled his knees up and put his thumb in his mouth. <laughs> and after doing television, you make your way to um, your first major feature film that you star in, which is The Stepfather, mm. and then there would be uh, a follow up to that. 
Was that both uh, in, in instances uh, of being both a blessing and, and a curse in one sense, probably more of a blessing, but a minor curse as far as being typecast? What was your approach to that role? It was it was probably as close as I've come to that that Stanislavski method that you mentioned. You know, really? But, well, yeah. in terms of just anger and letting frustration and anger and and madness out. I, I've always believed we all we you know that we that. W- we are a color wheel, you know. We all are a color wheel, mm-hmm. and we all have every color. Yeah. And some of us have some stronger than others. Some right. of us have a bigger portion of the pie is insanity. Is <laughs> the, you know, the, and because I remember frightening people when they would say we were on audition, we want you to get angry, and, and they would go like, whoa, whoa, that's too angry. This is watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and it is my utter delight to have Terry O'Quinn with us today. Uh, the intent of this program, as we contacted him, was not just to talk about his career, but also to look at the, the craft and legacy and uh, personal exploration that this man has been on for some decades uh, in becoming a greater actor. When you did The Stepfather and you for the first time, find yourself in a position where um, you are the key guy and everyone is very much aware that you're the key guy. Did it feel uncomfortable at first because you may not have experienced that having been um, a guest or an additional smaller character in in other works like the Michael Cimino thing, working with Chris Christopherson and what have you? Were you able to adapt to like, oh, wow, I'm carrying this? uh, It was a, it was um, you know, intimidating, sort of. I mean, I didn't because I didn't really have faith that I was uh, that person who could make somebody want to come and see a movie. Tell us about that. It's. Um, I think sometimes the best choices are the bravest choices. You know, when you when you want to be an actor, uh, when you want to do a scene, when you want to make when you want to make a choice and have an effect, you have to be able to uh, be willing to fail. I've. Um, the, the atmosphere of a set when you're working on a film um, or a television show, it's, you're surrounded by people. There may be 100 people there mm. and uh, not all looking at you, but all working all around from everywhere from the Teamsters and to the trailers and to the makeup and wardrobe and grips, electric, everybody. But they're all part of your team. They're all part of your family on that day. And the day that you show up on that job, they are automatically a part of your family. If someone shows up from outside and they've got a video camera, even if it's a news crew right. or someone from public television, they are not part of your family. Right. And I find that I find that to be intimidating. So when you have that kind of feeling, when I, when I get that, what do you find intimidating? If we, when other people come, it's like someone looking in my my window. Okay, outsiders. Yeah, okay. outsiders, and there's, a, there's outside the tribe. Exactly, yeah. the family. There's a little tiny circle that you're working for. Your everything is lit and decorated so that the images and everything you're doing is going Controlled. into this tiny yeah. little circle, the lens yeah. of a camera. Right. And that's who you're doing it for. If somebody is over there with a camera, that little tiny circle is not supposed to be there. But this being said, it's the it's the support of that family that gives makes me think this is not just me doing it. Now I may be afraid that people won't come to a film to see me, but all of these artists are working on this painting as well. Hmm. Um, so I'm not carrying this by myself, no matter what reviewers or whoever may say. Um, that gives me a lot of comfort. But still, the greatest doubt I have is that I'm not brave enough to make daring choices. That's still, that's still the thing that haunts me the most when I go to work. But it would seem to many, uh, certainly from the perspective of those sitting in their dens watching you on television or in cinema seats, that you've done just that. You've taken very brave choices. I mean, you've, you've taken – let's talk about John Locke for a moment. Um, and I want to back up by how you got that. J.J. Abrams was a person of high integrity because you'd been doing another show for him where you weren't being sufficiently compensated. Well, and, right. And, and, but the cast went to the producers and said, look, this man's not getting his, his fair, just reward for what he's doing. They did. 
And the producer said, and many people said, well, it's very sorry, he's doing a great job, but we just simply don't have it. J.J. Abrams intervenes and says, I promise you that as soon as something comes up, we will do right by you. Yes, he did. And he did that. And then here comes along Lost, and, and now you have this great character. That character um, is so multifaceted. I'm not just talking about the twists and the turns of the plots and the stories and how it develops, but the character itself, even what I loved about the introduction, and I think America and the rest of the world did, is you came in under the radar. Uh, in that initial pilot, we just see you, you just kind of almost happenstance to be off in the background, and then you emerge, and there's that wonderful moment when you give that grin with the orange peel in your mouth. Mm -hmm. Did you come up with that, by the way, or was that in script? I believe that was uh, in the script. That was great. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was almost like an homage to The Godfather, you know, when yeah. the concluding <laughs> yeah. scene with the orange thing. Yeah. But you do that, and it was so arresting. And then we couldn't get a fix on you. Now, you have various facets that work to your favor uh, physically, and one of them is your eyes. Mm. You have eyes that at one moment, you can go from the kindest, most serene, gentle look in your eyes, and within eight seconds, you get this quizzical look. An eyebrow goes up, and the entire face changes, not because of any twitches in the, in the muscles, but because of your eyes, hmm. and you become menacing. When did you first become aware that you have this power? Um, I, I, I wouldn't call it that, okay. I mean, but, but um, I... I uh, you are aware of it. I'm a, yeah. I mean, I love working with a camera. Yeah. I mean, I love working on on camera. I because those aren't things you can do on stage. Right. Yes. <laughs> because you, no, nobody's going to see them. Yeah. yeah. But um, no pun intended. I, I, <laughs> I think I I think I gradually became aware that that. I mean, and this sounds funny, but you know, you get up in the morning and you're brushing your teeth, or you know, you look you're, and you're looking in the mirror and you're going like, you know, there's much of a change or. Mm. Or that, yeah, that much right. of a change communicates all kinds of things. When there's the camera is ten inches away from you, or if, you know your your face is taking up a whole screen, the tiniest little. For those listening, uh, what Terry was just doing was just moving his eyelids by just slight millimeters, and it just such Literally. a change. And and I believe, and I have always have believed that thoughts that people see you see thought people see thoughts yes yes you know okay. I, there, there's nothing well there are a lot of things worse but it's it's bad when you see somebody and you go i don't think i don't think he's thinking anything there was so much very often absence of dialogue to yeah. your most effective moments that's yeah yeah i and, and it's the thoughts there and we can see the thought i do love that it's and on the brow know, emergence which you mentioned is an uh is a network show it's on abc it's running right now and uh has some wonderful actors in it, but I have been fortunate enough for the last four years to work with a writer named Stephen Conrad, um, the, who directed, wrote and directed Patriot, which is on Amazon. Um, there were two seasons of it, right. and uh, he also wrote and directed, uh, co-directed the series that we just finished. There's a uh, ten episodes of a series called Perpetual Grace, which is on uh, Epics, E P I X, which I had never heard of before, right. but. We were talking about stillness and the time in between. You speak. He was all about that. He yeah. was. He was. Here's a guy who takes. That you know. He says, "Don't please don't hurry. Take your time." And I've always believed that if I'm indulged in this, I want to think about something I might say. That isn't the line I'm supposed to say next. Right. Um, and think of that line. Oh no, I'm not okay. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say this. And then say the yeah. line. And Steve yeah. always loved that. You know, what are you? What's your guy thinking? What, what's right. he thinking? I want right. to know. I want to know what he's thinking. And he, because uh, otherwise you're like a dictaphone. You know. You yeah. Do, you know. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, it's not. The, I mean, it can get tiresome if you're taking too much. It's nice to have a thought and just blurt it out. And those are all variations that you put into a performance. Um, or, you know, if you decide that I'm going to talk and pick up this coffee cup in front. I'm going to put it down and tell you what I was thinking. You know, it's, right. so there, these moments, and it's and it's more challenging so, when you're on on network television because <laughs> the first note I got was, "Could you pick it up a little bit? Could you speed up a little bit?" <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah. After five years or four years of this kind of, but Steve would come and say things like, "Could you, could you try first of all be a little softer, and could you try like not to blink for this whole." Two pages. 
Wow. <laughs> I, go, yeah. I go, okay, that's weird. First of all, are you implying that you might be on me, you know, showing yeah. me on film for this whole time? Probably not, but he he would ask occasionally think, but not manipulative. As yeah. an actor, I hate to be manipulated. Let's have a discussion. Let's both agree on yeah. what we want to show the audience. And then when we do, when we agree, I will do my very best to show them that. So it must have been incredibly exciting to have somebody so open and um, responsive to what the two of you discovered together. That's exceptional. It was. And the family that he there's – there's also a talent for, for gathering a family, uh, a group of people to make mm -hmm. something, mm -hmm. a casting. Yes. I mean, he uh, – and he got this the best family. I mean, I remember working on Lost, and um, there's an actor named Michael Emerson who played mm -hmm. the character Ben on Lost. Right. And he would he's a good example that I use when I talk to actors about. He would come in and and we would start a scene, and and I might say to him, you know, that I'm, this feels weird to me. I'm having trouble. So, and then he and I might have a discussion about it without involving the director. Not that we're avoiding the director. If the director wants to come and talk with us, he or she may. Right. But um, I remember one time Michael came in with a scene that we were going to do, and he had it in his head, and he had obviously this sort of decided, whether consciously or not, how he was going to play the scene. And uh, he started to, to do it that way. And I said, I, I see you think that this is supposed to happen at this point. He said, I guess that's how I pictured it. And I said, that's, that's fine. I'm, and, and then I thought, okay, if that's how he wants to play it, does the scene still work? Does it still, does it still convey the message it's supposed to? Yes, it does. Okay, let's play it that way. I probably imagined it another way. Right. But it's a cooperative effort. We're going to do this together. If, and if I can give you something that you want, good, that's what I do. And then, then the whole scene will be better for it. What's always struck me as odd is the um, quizzical relationship between um, certainly series, a television series that you're doing, where you, every four weeks you have a different director. Actually, every week you do it, but you don't see the one director perhaps for another three weeks and then they come back. Ultimately, you are your own masters of your characters. Your characters are established. Everything is, is the, the imprint is given by the, the initial um, pilot. But when these other directors come in, other than setting shots, are they really substantially instrumental in helping you to discover things? Now, I know in the last case you've just mentioned that's true, but is, is there a danger of it becoming, not with your performance, but with their approach, a bit perfunctory? Well, I've certainly seen that. I've, I've seen that on, on shows on which I guested. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and there were plenty of them. But it becomes necessarily so to a certain extent. But you, but my feeling always is that person comes to fulfill a role and he has a position. And until he proves otherwise, like anyone in a uniform, so to speak, mm -hmm. he deserves the respect due to that position. And if he wants to come and suggest something or say something, I'm obligated to hear him. And professionally, I am. That's how I feel. Uh, there are plenty of actors who say, you don't know this character. I've been working on this character for four years. Don't, what are you coming and talking to me about? Mm -hmm. That happens. But I feel that it, uh, it's my – otherwise, it's – I don't know. It seems like it would be terribly humiliating to a person to come and try to be that, you know. And um, it, it's often resented when a director comes into, onto a set that's been going for a while and tries to somehow make his – leave his mark on it. Right, yeah. You know, because that – it sort of like it changes essentially something in the in the makeup of the show, but I think um, I always try to satisfy those things. I mean, I'm as touchy as anyone. If if someone approaches me wrong, yes, I, yeah. Yeah. I resent it. I still right. try to do it uh, until I just think it's stupid, and then I don't want to do it. Terry, have you had moments when, uh, with all of your regard and respect and good intentions, a director has seemed perhaps so inept? almost forcing you to do something that you didn't want to do, that you were um, emotionally stressed and upset by it. Yeah. How, how have you handled that? Um, I'll probably do it badly. <laughs> Not intentionally, but, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I try to do it. I used to, I used to say, well, you know, if you're ready and if somebody says, go, I want you to stand on your head in a corner and do these lines, you could do it. Hmm. And I'm sure I could. But as you grow older, you go, you're more willing to say, well, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> uh, 
Well, let me just ask you something, and this is going on on a limb. I have one page of dialogue um, that I have here, and it's, I wrote it this morning, okay? Uh, and if you want to bypass it, we don't have to do it, but I'll show it to you. It's just one page, and um, oh, actually, here it is, but this is the blown-up version. And oh, yeah, it's a taxi driver. Version. Okay. okay. Yeah. And it's a taxi driver. I'm going to be the te- English taxi driver, if you're willing to do this. And w- the purpose behind this is to show or tell an audience how you approach a scene. So I'll just read this verbatim for a moment, like a table read, if that's okay. Exterior London, Yardley Hotel, day. <laughs> Before the Georgian structure, on a pavement, stands a distinguished man dressed in a tailored suit. He hails a black taxi and gets in. Interior taxi, day continuous. The driver studies the man in his mirror. Driver. Hey, aren't you that American uh, what writes all um, scary movies? The man. Actually, I write scary novels, but most get turned into movies. Yeah. I saw that one about... um, Look, if you don't mind, I have an appointment. Yeah, all right. Sorry, mate. Um, Well, where are we off to then? Buckingham Palace. Ooh, that's bosh. (laughs) Inside and all. Precisely. It's a royal investiture. Oh, that's nice. What's the occasion? I'm being knighted by the Queen. What? Can't be. You're a yank. Well, I'll tell that to Steven Spielberg. Okay. Now, this was a cold table read, right? Yeah. What was your approach? Now, I, I was m- marveled at how you did this, okay? Um, cold read, quite good. Was Steven Steel- Spielberg knighted? Yes, he was. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, Steven Spielberg was knighted. Um, Billy Graham, the evangelist, has been knighted. Uh, you can be knighted. The only thing is if you're knighted by Her Majesty the Queen and you're not British, you can't use the sir? term sir ah. or dame, but they're completely fully knighted. So, um, And there's, there's other persons, Americans, many Americans who have been knighted. So, ah. uh, so actually the irony of it is, is that here you have an English taxi driver who's oblivious to <laughs> the actual proper... Uh, protocol and, and, and sanctioning and, and opportunity to um, have an investiture. So if you got this cold, yeah. okay, and thank you so very much for your graciousness in playing along with this, um, what is your initial reaction when you, when you look at it? Do you look for beats? I look for more rhythm and, and accent. Um, I don't look, for, you know, yeah, I mean, beats, just anything to make it, in this case, looking at something just cold, I just I, I see it kind of like a piece of music. I mean, I'm already going. Why? How would I sound if I wanted to sound different? How would I, you know, how, how would I vocally sound different? So when you ran lines, you know, with a, with your wife or a friend or what have you, yeah, would you bring it up, and crank it up, and then bring it back down again and say that's the one I want, or do you not? on a television show, have the luxury to do that? No, sometimes I would do that. I mean, I would do that or do it by myself or, or when I'm talking with someone. Yeah, I would. I always imagine how I might say them. And oftentimes when I'm by myself, I don't even say the lines out loud. But I mean, eventually, it's almost like I, they're never really fastened in my memory until I say them out loud to a person. Okay. I, mean, I can go over them and over them in my head. And then I'll ask uh, Kate, my, my loved one, Will you listen to these ones for me? And, and, yeah. then, and then she'll listen, say them, and then they're there. Then I have them after I've given them some, some work. Just a practical tip for uh, running lines and committing them to memory. What's your approach? What I'm challenged by usually is a long speech, which I love and I think is wonderful. And they would do that occasionally on Lost. Mm-hmm. They would give. Um, oh, you've had give, great soliloquies. Give you almost. a nice, yeah, yeah a nice moth. The moth. There's a moth moment in one episode, which is this with Charlie. Cool. I yeah, remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you suppose is in the cocoon, Charlie? I don't know. A, a, a butterfly, I guess. No, it's much more beautiful than that. That's a moth cocoon. It's ironic. Butterflies get all the attention, but moths they spin silk. They're stronger, they're faster. That's wonderful. But you see this little hole? This moth's just about to emerge. It's in there right now, struggling, digging its way through the thick hide of the cocoon. Now, I could help it. Take my knife, gently widen the opening, and the moth would be free. But it would be too weak to survive. And and that, that I, I'll, I'll work on that. If you get it in advance, if you have the luxury, Steve Conrad in, in Patriot, yeah. there was a scene um, where I'm telling a story, and it was a... It was like four page. It was a four page story, uh, and it was just me talking, telling the story for about four pages. Yeah, and uh, I saw it probably two weeks or three in advance, and I worked on it for two or three weeks as we were doing other, other smaller scenes and other episodes. 
um, so that when we got to it, I, I sort of, I was quite proud. I just rolled it out and uh, everybody was amazed. Um, and, and never made it into the show. <laughs> into the show. <laughs> like, really, Steve? My goodness. You've been very gracious with your time. And um, I would like to ask you at this point, imagine that in this studio right now, there are, there's a young actor and an older actor. I always like to include older people because mm -hmm. they have dreams too. And if you were to look them in the eyes from your heart, what would you tell them? I would, I would tell the young actor, and this is not I've ever, always ever popular. <laughs> I, say, I would say, uh, don't get married and don't have children uh, right now. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely no hurry. You're gonna if you saddle yourself with a family, it, you're gonna have first of all no choice in what you do if you're lucky enough to get anything to do. You know, you're just a lone hiker on this journey for a while, or else you know, find a sugar mama or sugar daddy to take care of you. But, <laughs> but don't put huge financial stress on yourself. Don't do that. You're an Emmy Award winner. Um, to wrap up, your lowest moment as an actor and your highest moment. Probably, I would imagine the lowest was financial worry. Yeah, I think it was when I think it was just that um, what I was talking about. It was it was putting stress on a relationship and on a family and and being shamed because you were not a good provider. Did you have moments when you had to deal with a father-in-law who's looking at you and saying, "Why don't you get a real job?" Yes. <laughs> okay. How did you handle that? I I I I, I looked away and um, just sort of charged on as best I could. I, it's funny because when I was married for 30 years and not divorced, but once that family saw me on television and film, they were like, they, they were, they were, I don't know. They, we always knew. They were much more accepting of my chosen field. When they finally came around and acknowledged what you did, some people might say, oh, that must have been a very gleeful, happy moment for you. But I could imagine it would be an extremely painful one. Yeah, yeah, I can. I know why you can imagine that. And yes, it was. It wasn't extremely painful. It was more of a relief. Ah, uh, I wasn't grateful by any means. Right. Um, but um, I was relieved just to have that particular noise stop, have that toothache go away. <laughs> so it must be ter terribly tiresome to to have to validate yourself constantly before the eyes of other people. It is. Uh, it is. But you know, that's part of the it's part of the business. I mean, because you actually do have to do it. Consistently, uh, it's, I think Dustin Hoffman. I read somewhere he said, like, you, you, he thinks every job is his last. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I, I kind of feel that way too. And I always think uh, somewhere, some eventually, I'm going to get busted, and <laughs> they're just going to know it's just a big fake. Coming back around, your advice for an older actor? I would say to an older actor that you know, if you know, if you just love it, keep doing it. I don't know. I don't. You know, as far as being in the business. Or, or, or all of a sudden, you have to make a living doing this. I would say, don't expect to, <laughs> but, but it's, but keep, you know, be professional. Look for opportunities to do it because if you're older and you're looking to do it, it must be because it makes you happy. So, just look for opportunities and be kind. I was uh, on a plane the other day, on flying back from New Jersey, where we were shooting. And uh, there was a basketball player who came up to me, tall, handsome man, retired, long retired. And it refers to <clears throat> the, whole, the whole thing about, about validating yourself. The, this basketball player came up and he said, I'm so-and-so. And I said, I, I remember your name. And I said, and I remember, I've watched, I've seen you play long ago. Played with Kareem and uh, those guys on the Milwaukee Bucks. And it made me think, this is the only, I mean, there, I'm sure there are many. There are, I'm sure there are several. Most in the arts, I imagine. Job where you can continue to get better and better, no matter how old you are. You can continue to get better at it. Mm. And you do continue to get better mm. at it if you keep an open mind, mm. as long as you're reasonably healthy. Yeah, Olivier said that. Yeah. 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 Well, see, there's, I didn't even know that. He and I think alike. You do indeed. <laughs> Your highest moment as an actor. It, 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 there's not a moment um, it, there's experience and the, the highest, it's the, always the happiest I am. And it was, it was on the set of Lost. I, you know, I remember getting an Emmy Award and uh, that was sort of a high moment for an actor. But then I was like, I, I behave, I regret that sort of like the way I acted and behaved. But 
You, my, didn't, you didn't seem aberrant. I've seen the clip. You okay. seemed perfectly fine. But my highest moments have always been just the recent things I did with Steve Conrad and that with that family. Mm. The greatest joy I experienced was going to work on that set and and Lost. They're probably like there are three top things I could tick off, and those are those are them. I've had some wonderful moments on stage, um, but the particulars I don't actually remember. Is it too far to say? that there might have been a calling on your life spiritually to be an actor? Or would you not entertain that idea? Well, I certainly feel, I certainly feel spiritual about it. You know, as a kid and, and the theater that is Catholicism. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it is. I mean, there's, 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 there's front stage, backstage with, with religious. Sure, you know, so I don't, it may have had that kind of an association. So the theatricality was interesting. To some extent, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I think, you know, Probably as spiritual as I have been in my life is feeling that sense of community. Um, when I go on a on a set on a, a happy set, and I I use that expression too. That's a very um, meaningful expression to me. You know, I call someone a pro mm. and say that this that that's a happy set. Um, that's that's all I could ask. You know, to go on a happy set because it means everybody's doing their job and there's respect and there's uh, you know there's joy and we're all happy to be there. Before you leave, would you indulge us, please, one more time with playing the guitar, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> if, if I must. I mean, I did, I did my audition as the man in the car. I'm about to be knighted by the queen. <laughs> perhaps I should. Okay, do you mind? No, I don't mind. Okay, let me give it to you then. That's great. Reasonably tuned. Sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I have my brushes here, and uh, I would just, just kind of... Go along with whatever you want to do. Before we begin, let me just say Terry O'Quinn, one of the most generous actors I've encountered, a kind man, thoughtful man, disciplined man, and um, a marvel to watch. And he's going to play us out, and I'm going to drum with him. Terry O'Quinn, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Four strong winds that blow lonely, seven seas that run high. All those things that don't change, come what may. If the good times are all gone, then I'm bound for moving on. I'll look for you if I'm ever back this way. I'll look for you if I'm ever Thank you so much. <laughs> My pleasure. You've been listening to Watch in America. Our theme tune is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer is Paul Bebo. Senior producer, Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm the series creator and host, yours truly, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care. Blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.